Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Brianna Approved Podcast. We have an amazing guest today, Rob Mack, who is a fellow East Coaster originally, an Ivy League educated positive psychology expert, a celebrity happiness coach, published author of Happiness from the Inside Out, The Art of Science Fulfillment, executive coach, TV host, producer, and co-host of the Man Whisperer podcast. You may have seen him on Good Morning America, The Today Show, E! Network, Oprah as well. And if you haven't seen him, he's always one of the most well-dressed people on Instagram and on public television. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. My goodness. Thanks so much for having me. That was the sweetest, most generous introduction ever. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because I think you are one of the people who talks about happiness in a way that I think more people need to have the conversation around because this idea of changing the narrative around happiness and positive psychology versus just being positive all the time, I think has been a slow boil, but very important. And so I think an interesting question I would love to start with asking you is how has your personal definition of happiness changed over five or 10 years? Wow, love that question. I'd say that in the beginning, I mostly thought of happiness as, of course, like what you achieve or accomplish or acquire or even experience. And, you know, then you sort of graduate from that. And then I sort of felt like happiness was what you do. You know, it's about doing happy things and being with happy people and visiting happy places. And that's all true too. It's certainly nice and much better to surround yourself with happy people and happy circumstances and do happy things than unhappy things. But then I even sort of evolved from there and realized, well, sometimes the very things and people and places that make you happy one day don't make you happy the next day. So then I came around to saying, well, you know, happiness is maybe more than that. Maybe it's a state of mind. And then I discovered that some days I could be real positive and that was fine. And there were other days where I just couldn't be. Um, and even on my most positive days, there was still this like underlying anxiety underneath the positive thoughts. So then I thought, that's interesting. And so I came around to discovering that happiness isn't what you do. It's not who you're surrounded by. It's not circumstances or conditions. It's not even what you think. It's not a state of mind. It's a state of no mind. Say it's a state of being, right? And so when I'm, my mind is cool, quiet, calm, composed, and collected, when it's quiet, I feel and experience the peaceful aliveness that I call happiness that's always there. I love that. I love alliteration. So I love all the C's that you just brought to the table. I think that's amazing. Uh, I think it's something that people did not realize was so important to address until this past year of, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And that includes your thoughts. You know, you can be crying on a beach or crying in your living room, but you know, the feelings are going to, you know, still come and go. So I, I think that's why it is so important to have that. And I know you wrote a whole book about this. And this next question I'm going to ask you is kind of going to be like trying to pick your favorite child or favorite sibling or whatnot. But I know in your book, you talked about kind of having some of these like eight basic principles for obtaining happiness and success. And like, I always say I'm pro living your best life. So what would you say, or maybe your top two or three, or maybe the ones that when people are like really working on this journey of, you know, being their best selves, would be like the low hanging fruit to say, let me start with these principles. They're a little bit easier to integrate. I'd say the first one is the law or principle of least energy investment, maybe the path of least resistance. Sometimes I call it lazy intelligence, but you know, there's always um, a way 
to get equal or better results with, time, with less time, energy, and effort. And so I'd say that one of the things I've discovered over the years is that I can always um, get equal or better results with happiness by going directly to the source for it. And I've continued to try and tweak that for myself over the years. So I'd say that's the first one. It's like, you know, it's easy to route your happiness through other people and places and things. And that's the long scenic indirect route path, the hard path. And there's an easier path, which is sort of going directly to the source for it, right? So I'd say that's the first one. And we can always dive more deeply into that if you want. Um, the other thing I think is, you know, ultimately is that your point of power is always in the present. So, so many of us feel like we have to clean up everything from the past or, you know, sort of resolve everything that ever happened to us, which is like impossible. It's like trying to get to the end of the internet, never happens, <laughs> right? Or we feel like it's about creating a perfect life in the future, that if we can just get all the circumstances and people and conditions just right, then we'll finally be happy. But science is, argues against that, of course, very strongly. And our own experiences argue against that. I mean, if you look at your life now and notice all the things, people, places that you've experienced or have, you'll notice very quickly that, you know, not too many years ago, you would have prayed for these things and you would have thought that you'd been happier as a result, but most of us aren't happier as a result of our increasing achievements, acquisitions, accomplishments, whatever. I love that. I always joke with my mom and I say, you know, the idea of if I knew then what I know now, and I'm like, yeah, but when will I ever know now? And this, I think, goes back to that concept of destination happiness. And, you know, social media is great for so many things. Like I would have never found you, you know, if there wasn't social media and things like that, it connects people. But I do think there is like a bit of this comparison game of my highlight reel versus your highlight reel. And that's not always great. And so I do think that there is definitely this difference between peace and happiness, you know? Yes, yes. So um, sometimes the way I put it is, um, well, first of all, I would define happiness as peaceful aliveness. So I describe, describe it and define it probably much more like the way you do. Um, and unlike the way lots of people do, I think lots of people think of happiness as, you know, smiling all the time and this roller coaster of excitement that you're experiencing all the time. But it's, it, I would say that there's something that's much more lasting and deep and meaningful and abiding than that, that underlies even your highest highs and your lowest lows. That peaceful aliveness deep inside is what I call happiness, right? And so you're absolutely right. You know, we all kind of get caught up in this idea that if we can just achieve or accomplish something in the future, that we'll be happy. But the truth is we just take this future-oriented mindset with us into the future. And so we're always projecting happiness into some other person, place, or thing outside of us and outside of this present moment. And that's precisely the problem, right? You never kind of, no matter how fast you sort of paddle towards the horizon, you never get there. It's that kind of feeling. So in any case, happiness is something that you um, experience here and now or not at all. Um, and, uh, you know, the science of it is great too, provides a lot of context. Basically what they found is if you could create your perfect life, Imagine everything you want, like unlimited money, unlimited partners, if that was your thing, you know, um, kids or no kids, perfect health, perfect beauty. All those things combined only account for about 10% of our happiness, right? 10%, that means 90% is completely within our control. And I would go further than that and say 100%, but that's what science says, at least 90% is. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to your point about this idea of 
conditional happiness. I'll be happy when I get this partner, this job or whatever. And all those things means you're basically just giving away your power as well. And real change happens when you say, how am I actively participating in allowing this to remain in my life? And I know that you used to do your happiness tips and uh, tricks, tips of the day. And I know one of the ones that resonated with me was, you know, everything serves you. And it's this idea. And again, I joke saying like, can I ever just get a blessing that's not in disguise from the universe, right? Um, Truth. But what would you say to somebody who maybe is kind of working on that? And they're like, no, I get it. Like, I'm working through my trauma, like everything serves me, I'm where I'm supposed to be, but I'm just still having like a really rough time right now. And like, I just can't be a yogi, green juice, linen wearing, you know, hippy dippy today. I'm like, I'm going through it. Yeah, I'd say lean into that, embrace that. Welcome to the human race, right? We all feel <laughs> that way. That's why I'm happy to just go because I felt that way most of my life. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that when bad things happen now, I'm super excited about it, right? It's not like, oh, wow, yes, you know, no money or yes, I'm sick or whatever. It's like, no, it's like I um, would prefer to, you know, be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and all those things. And I will say that, you know, I went through a period of time for about 20 some years where I was deeply depressed. I mean, I remember being depressed as long as I remember being alive. I mean, my first memory was of being extraordinarily stressed and anxious and self-hating and self-loathing, maybe five or six years of age. I always thought, thought I would grow out of that. You know, you think, oh, I'm gonna eventually have a girlfriend, hopefully, and I'll make some money maybe. And I had dreams of being a professional basketball player. So I thought, well, once I accomplish my dreams, it'll all be okay. And of course, I never became a professional basketball player, but a lot of the other things happened. And my depression only worsened despite my life getting better. And I got to a place where I was intensely suicidal. I was thinking about suicide dozens of times a day more than anything or anybody else. And I eventually did some research, decided I was going to slash my wrist. Had a moment there where I dug the knife in, still have the suicide test marks on my wrist to this day. And for no good reason that I could explain understand at the time, I felt um, this peace and sense of well-being and joy that I had never experienced before. And so I put off suicide in that moment for like just a couple of minutes. It was like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I was like, ah, I'm going to put this off. I can always commit suicide later. But I'm going to do a little research, started doing some research, and I suddenly discovered I wasn't alone. But I look back now, the whole point of me sharing that story is that the whole time before that, I was asking life, God, the universe, why am I here on this planet? You know, I'm the ugliest person, the stupidest person. I hate myself in every way. I don't feel like there's really any purpose that I have. Nothing makes me happy. Nobody makes me happy. What's wrong with me? And I came to discover later that my asking for clarification around my purpose was right under my nose the entire time. It was buried in this unhappiness thing. And so when I think Folks like us talk about everything serving you and the greatest gifts often being poorly wrapped. That's precisely what I mean is that now I can't imagine having the purpose I have now without the pain and problems I had then. I love that you shared that because I think there's a negative stigma around mental health and suicide, depression, anxiety. It's something that people don't talk about. And, you know, especially I believe on, on the, you know, East coast Italian mindset, you know, that's how I grew up. That was like, what, you're going to go see a therapist. What's wrong with you kind of thing and toxic masculinity. And, you know, all this that we're now putting terms on, which is great because it shines light. 
you know, but I do think that I'm on this kind of personal mission. You know, I've coined the term being a recovering super spaz where all emotions are just, it's information. And it's like, you wouldn't get mad if it's cloud, if it's cloudy outside, you would say, Ooh, it's cloudy. So I should maybe bring an umbrella today. And the more information we have, the more we can do. And it's like the more people that bring light to the conversation and say, yeah, I have also been there. I think that's what it is. You know, biologically, we evolved from tribes. We wanna be around people. We wanna like iron sharpens iron, you know, and that is important. But I think it's an interesting dichotomy because when you finally get to that point, like what you were saying, when you're when you wake up and you're like, this is just not the journey for me, I, I want to change. It can feel very lonely and kind of like a very personal journey. And maybe your family or friends don't like get what you're going through. You're evolving. Right. So, like, how would you maybe give advice to younger Rob or people who are maybe struggling with that, who are like maybe feeling alone because like their vibe, their tribe right now is just like not vibing with them? Totally. Oh, what a profound question. I would say that first and foremost, of course, you're not alone. Um, you're actually in the majority. Um, so that's the first thing is that most people go through at least about a depression in their life at some point in time. Okay. Um, in 1950, the average age for the first onset or bout of depression was about 29 and a half years of age. And uh, as of about 2001, so this is 20 years ago, it was about 13 and a half years of age. So that means meant teenagers for the most part were going through this. So very common, that's the first thing. Um, second, I would argue that the sort of line between sort of depression and awakening is razor thin, right? It's like, in fact, I would argue that it's the first step towards a deeper awakening that I might call peace and love and happiness um, than you realize, right? The only challenge is that we often knock on the wrong door. And so the way out of that sort of, sort of depression we, 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 we often, first of all, just hide it, okay, which is understandable. I hid mine. Then we try to sort of tread in and have conversations with people who don't understand or can't understand or don't want to understand. Maybe they're afraid of their own anxieties and depressions and concerns. Um, instead of sort of leaning in to those people, places, and spaces where it's safe to share and where it will be fully and enjoyably received. Right. And so that's often the value of professionals, folks that have dedicated their lives to it. Right. It's also the value of really great friends or relatives, even strangers sometimes, you know, you connect with. So I would say that, you know, if you're going through, you know, whether it's stress or anxiety or depression or really any problem, please know that there are people in the world that have dedicated their entire lives, all of their blood, sweat and tears, every waking moment of their life to solving the one problem that you're struggling with the most right now. I promise you, like that was my discovery. I was blown away. I always thought, it's just me. You know, I'm gonna have to struggle with this alone and I can't do it and I don't know the answers. I'm not smart enough. And then before long, I just found one little author and then I, that led me to another author and then another person. And before I knew it, I was like, wow, I'm just absolutely drowning in this really phenomenal help out there in the world. And most of it was virtual, right? So the resources available um, please reach out if you're feeling concern, um, you know, stress, anxiety, if you're struggling with a problem. There are people that not only um, can help, but want to help. You're helping them fulfill their purpose by allowing them to help you. Absolutely. I think that is so important too, because I think that a lot of the times you end up attracting younger versions of yourself or things, again, that you wish you would have said and been kinder. We're always so much harder on ourselves than we are to others. And you would never speak to others the way we speak to ourselves. And so 
I'm wondering for you, you know, being a happiness coach and all of this, do you ever feel external pressure? I know it's probably not pressure you put on yourself, but external pressure to be like happy on all the time or like, you know, I joke as a nutritionist, every time you go to a party or something, people like they want to tell you about the supplements they're taking and uh, what they're eating, right? So do you kind of feel that pressure or, and how do you kind of deal with that? I used to feel it a lot. It's, it's I mean, you ask the most the best questions. You really do. They're just your authentic, deep questions. Yes, I used to feel that a lot. And you have to be careful of the books you write, the movies you produce, because, you know, what you teach ends up teaching you, right? So when I wrote Happiness from the Inside Out, you know, I had been, it had been a solid decade or so since I had really been going through the deep, dark depression and suicidal stuff. And so, you know, I'd come out on the other side, but it took a long time. And so I'm doing the book tour and everything. And then I remember my mom and her infinite wisdom, I was having a tough day and um, I was feeling a lot of pressure to be happy and stuff. And she also said, she said, honey, I know that you feel a lot of pressure about this but I also know you're going through some stuff right now but you know this is uh your purpose on one hand and this is also your joy on the other and I think ever since that moment it has stopped feeling like pressure at all um one because it's become a lot less energy and time consuming to be happy it's like it's a I think in the beginning it was more like effortful because it is, you're literally rewiring your brain. I mean, it's pretty much what you're doing, right? And you're basically relearning or unlearning what you've been practicing for decades, for decades. So it doesn't happen overnight. But then as you continue practicing it, practicing it for the joy of it, you discover that it's more of a resting and relaxing inside than it is a performative or performing thing on the outside, right? So I don't feel the pressure anymore because it's like, I just rest in that infinite pull inside as often as possible or recognize that I'm always resting there. And so the pressure, um, not anymore, but in the beginning, for sure. I could imagine because it is, you know, it's a part of your identity. It's a part of your story. It's a part of your quote brand. And then it's this idea of, you know, almost having to relive the trauma, if you will, as you're going, as you've already healed, you know, it's like the, the, the scab is healed and you got to like rip it open again. And I, that's, you know, energetically draining. And I'm sure you and I are like in the sense of, you know, everything is about what you're investing in. So time, energy, right. Even emotions like worry, anxiety, all of that, sometimes they're poor energetic investments. And so to your point, I think it's this idea of like subtracting things, doing less when we're in the world of biohacking everything and adding more and 20 steps in the morning and 20 steps at night. And it's like, what do you think is maybe one or two things that like should be subtracted from the life that we're all trying to live and be the best? Oh, shivers. You give me shivers. I <laughs> have these things called soul shivers when I just feel like someone's just spitting truth, you know, and um, feel that entire conversation with you. And, you know, it's like, 100% true, like happiness is not addition, it's really subtraction. It's sort of like multiplication through subtraction. So it's like by subtracting things and thoughts from your life, you suddenly discover that your happiness is multiplied, right? And um, in the same way also, when you share that happiness, it's also multiplied, right? So it's an interesting kind of math, uh, so to speak, around happiness. Um, happiness is, le I'd say it's less about learning new things, knowing more, doing more. It's certainly about being more while you do what you do. But in the beginning, you kind of have to do less and focus more on just being. Like, you know, we kind of run around a lot. And I don't know if you saw that viral sort of videos that were 
sort of being shared on like TikTok where people were basically asking themselves, am I happy or just distracted, right? And most of us are just highly distracted. Happiness is not entertainment, you know, it's uh, something deeper and more, more lasting and meaningful and abiding and also something that's so much more fulfilling than that. Totally. I also think that you should put that quote on a coffee mug and start selling that effective immediately because <laughs> people need to hear more of that and read more of that. And again, I think it goes back to this idea. I, I believe I was reading when I was, I did an episode on positive psychology on my podcast very early on because I, I thought it was just interesting. And I'm the same way. Like I love the hippy dippy spiritual Buddhist. My mom was reading me like Dr. Wayne Dyer when I was five years old. So it's been like deep in my brain for a very long time, but I also am a nerd. So I, I like the science of it. So can, can you maybe talk a little bit about like some things that really lit you up when you were doing the research on positive psychology or like those aha moments you were like, this is just, this is so cool. Oh my goodness, so much. Like, I love you saying that. And by the way, am I jealous? My goodness, five years of age, listen to Wayne Dyer. That would have been uh, just incredible. I wanted Mother Goose, but I got Wayne Dyer and now <laughs> I'm thankful for it. Yeah, it takes a while to grow into appreciating <laughs> Wayne. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say that first and foremost, what I discovered about the science of positive psychology was that for at least 50 years at the time, so this is around 2001 or so, um, folks were living for the first time a better life than their grandparents for the most part, right? And that was like a new thing. And so we had tremendous progress. So folks were living longer, healthier lives due to technological advancement and improvements in healthcare and medicine and uh, technology. And so Folks were living much better lives objectively, but they were feeling much worse for them subjectively. So despite the improvements and advancements in the world, folks were actually experiencing 10 times the level, level of unipolar and bipolar depression. They were experiencing more access one and access two disorders or neuroses and anxiety disorders. And so that was the first thing. Then as time went on, I came to discover that positive psychology was founded by Martin Seligman, who taught at University of Pennsylvania, which is the program I went to. And you know, I had read his research for years and what he was always studying was learned helplessness. So when you try to do something over and over again, it doesn't get you the results you want. You get, of course, very frustrated. And sometimes you can get to a place where you feel helpless and that helplessness can slide into depression, right? And so he felt, as all psychologists did at the time, if you removed the dysfunction, the learned helplessness, the stress, the anxiety, whatever for folks, you would get a thriving individual. But he found out very quickly that wasn't the case. You just got a flatlining individual. They weren't happy. They were just existing. You know, they were well-adjusted to a sick society, so to speak. And so as time went on, then, you know, more and more research came out around positive psychology. And I guess the way I'll put it briefly and simply is that success doesn't lead to happiness, right? Um, happiness is the greatest success, meaning that the reason we want to be successful in our relationships, with our finances, in our businesses, is because we think we'll feel better for it. And that better feeling is what I would call happiness. And then more than that, beyond that, happiness actually is highly correlated with success. So that means that happier people live six to seven years longer. They make about 600 to $700,000 more on average over the course of their entire lifetime. They get married earlier, stay married longer, are happier in all the relationships, whether they're married or not. They experience less job burnout. They're actually rated as more attractive physically, even though they're not physically more attractive. It's something about smiling and being happy from within that's actually quite literally and figuratively attractive and magnetic, right? So in all ways, I would say happiness makes your life better off. 
Um, but those are some of the chief or key findings I remember that surprised me the most. Yeah, it's, it is really crazy about just like, fig some people are lucky in the sense that they get to figure out what lights them up. And that's, you know, positive psychology talks about finding what fulfills you. And this is why people who win the lottery still end up committing suicide, because it's like, it's not about money. I mean, would I rather be crying on like, you know, in a five star hotel? Absolutely. But you know, it still is about like you said, the people you surround yourself, the thoughts you think doing stuff for other people, you know, and I talk a lot about this idea of like, pro-inflammatory people, which does not get enough attention. And I think people, as to what we were talking about before, like as you kind of elevate and do some self-auditing, like people energy vibes that don't serve you anymore. It's it's an interesting, like this idea of, okay, I have my, my toe in this door and I wanna get out of this. And so like, sometimes we just get stuck in our discomfort or this idea of, you know, learned helplessness. And I think that that is tough. You know, have you ever kind of like gone through that as you've, you know, evolved over the past couple of years and maybe gotten more exposure in your career and all of that. And this idea of, again, like letting go of added pressure, being authentic to myself, being in California sometimes, you know, you don't always know what people's, you know, their true intentions are. How, how have you kind of experienced or, or dealt with that? Yeah, totally. I, I love that. I, um, so, so many great points you made there. We could unpack those for years, probably. Like, you know, um, I have, you know, I think one of the things, of course, I've discovered about happiness is that it is about letting go, right? Um, and I would say that, you know, of course, there's a deeper way to say it, which is that um, there's nothing to hold on to, <laughs> yes. right? So it's always uh, a manufactured illusion, this idea that you hold on to anything. It's like the body, forget about it, your car, your money, like one day, you know, it'll all be taken away, it'll rust away, it'll wear out, you know? So there's that, but it's like thoughts are really what we are, um, I have found most worth letting go of. So there's that. I'd say, um, the you know, the challenge and opportunity for most of us, I think at the end of the day, is that while we intellectually understand a lot of this, you know, it's not like particularly new stuff, but the application of it is very new. And taking this stuff that is mind stuff, it's like thoughts and ideas and having an intellectual understanding and letting it sink down to your heart where you actually apply it and feel the visceral truth in it is an entirely different kind of experience. It's like Bruce Lee said something profound, which I love, which is like, you know, to know is to do. To know and not do is not to know, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the quote, great quote from him is, you know, I fear not the person who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but the practice, person who has practiced one kick 10,000 times, right? So when it comes to happiness, like so many things in life, it's just practicing the one or two things you know consistently, right? And so when it comes to authenticity, which is a great point at the beginning, none of this feels very authentic because it's not familiar, but we mistake familiarity for authenticity, right? It's not the same thing, familiarity, just because you've spent a lot of time with someone or a lot of time doing something doesn't mean it's authentic to you, obviously. And so I think when it comes to relationships, that can be a real challenge for folks, um, you know, finding their authenticity, particularly in the middle of a conversation, interaction, relationship. For me, I think the greatest challenge has been really around work, right? Work, because I'm a happiness coach, but so many folks call me not because they say, oh, I've got problems being happy, Rob. They call me because they say, I'm single or I'm married and it sucks, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like always about somebody or something else. So I, of course, give them the truth from the most authentic place possible. Um, but I think a lot of times people want me to say or be things other than what I say or am. 
Um, but I've sort of let that go. As you get older, you just don't care anymore. <laughs> totally. I mean, that's what, I mean, it definitely is. It's just to your point, like leaning into being like, no, it's not always about what's good or bad. It's what's in alignment for me, but people don't want to have that conversation with themselves. That's so good. Like that's exactly and precisely it. It's about being in alignment with yourself. You know, I think in the middle of my beginning of my journey, I'm sure you've had plenty of, um, I'm sure you know, Abraham Hicks. Yes. All right. So in the beginning, it was Abraham Hicks really turned, helped me turn things around. I grew up in a really loving family, but, um, you know, uh, had some religious stuff that was really sticky for me. And it was adding to my depression and suicidal ideation. And when I discovered Abraham Hicks, they allowed me to sort of see things in a different, more powerful way. And one of my favorite thoughts and insights from them is that, you know, when you find alignment or harmony with yourself, you find alignment and harmony with everybody and everything else, even if and when they don't find it with you, which is exactly it. That doesn't mean that people will necessarily love you being in alignment with yourself. It just means those people who don't love you being in alignment with yourself will find their way out of your life. And people who do love it will find their way into your life. And that's why this alignment thing, this alignment with self is everything. I love that. Do you find, since you understand the psychology of people and kind of their motives and why, like, where do you fall on the, on the scale of like, okay, I'm going to allow that pattern or behavior to slide because like, I get it because of X, Y, Z trauma or being like, no, I'm not going to make excuses. Or is that something that you struggled with maybe in the past in different kinds of versions of relationships, whether that was work, romantic, platonic, what have you? Oh, wow, man, you're just hitting on all the best points. It's like, absolutely, I struggled with that. I struggled with that for a long time. Um, for me, it was in, in the context of all relationships, but particularly romantic relationships, I think it'd be most challenging, right? You're trying to work through and heal some stuff maybe from childhood and without knowing it. And I would say that, you know, I had confounded the idea of relationship with the idea of love, right? So I thought, I need, if I'm gonna, my, no, my job is to love this person. I thought that meant I had to be in a relationship with them still. I didn't understand or really appreciate or wasn't even aware of this possibility of loving someone better from a distance. I didn't get that, right? That's the one thing. The other thing I sort of didn't quite understand and get, uh, it's much clearer to me now through lots of pain and suffering, is that, you know, um, to fight unconsciousness is unconsciousness, to judge judgment is judgment. You know, um, sometimes folks are too unconscious to know they're unconscious. It's like being too drunk to know you're drunk. Like, right? It's Absolutely. like, so it's like to fight that is um, only to invite more of it. So you fuel and feed the very thing you're fighting. Um, you know, it's like that whole, what you resist persists. One of my favorite quotes. Others, right? Yes. And what you see in others and focus on in others, you strengthen yourself. So I've learned and I've had some personal trainers in my life for this, <laughs> right? Like um, involuntarily, um, who've really helped me come to a place where I can see that, yes, you can set boundaries. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like talking about it in that way, way because it often feels like I'm putting up a wall. For me, it's just like, can I just not feed and fuel and encourage the bad behavior? How can I best do that? It's often by removing myself from the situation, by not revisiting and reliving it over and over again, by not getting into an argument with so-and-so about something. You know, if there's a physical threat at hand, of course I wanna protect folks and do what I can to make sure everyone's safe. Um, but yeah, I used to really struggle with that. I used to really think that um, to love meant to be a doormat um, and it meant to stay in the relationship even if it was unhappy or unhealthy and that I couldn't speak up or stand up for myself. And that when I did speak up or stand up for myself that it had to be 
angry or upset or it doesn't have to be any of those things. In fact, I'd argue that that's just adding to the problem. Absolutely. And I mean, to to that point, I think, you know, self-esteem obviously plays a role in that. And, and I think that actually only comes with testing boundaries, not of other people. It's really with yourself of saying, okay, I'm, these are my emotional negotiations and it, whether you want to accept them or not, I have to feel okay with that. But a lot of that comes from the ego. And I know you've spoken on the ego before. I don't know if it's an East coast thing. I'm like a recovering egomaniac, not in the sense of I care what I look like or that, but it's, you know, your thoughts start to control you and going down a rabbit hole and being analytical. So like, what's your relationship like with your ego now versus Rob five years ago with your ego? Cause yeah. that's a, that's a long-term committed relationship. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, so sometimes the way I think about it, I'm sure we've always, most of us have probably heard this expression, but ego sometimes for me stands for everything good outside. Oh, I everything love that. I've never heard that. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or, or even God outside. Right. So, so, so the idea is like, for me, I think of sometimes ego is just the mind or just thoughts. So anything that tells me what I'm looking for or truly want is outside of me and not within me and is in the future and not the present or presence itself is ego. Right. And so most of your thoughts, if you notice, are precisely that <laughs> they're all an encouragement really in a way, whether it's through fear or through desire, and th those are two sides of the same coin, right? So ego is fear on one side, desire on the other. It's seeking on one side, resisting on the other. In either case, it's seeking something in, or resisting something uh, that's here and now, right? And so um, the cheat code, of course, with the ego um, is first of all, to recognize it not as a real entity, but as simply a thought in your head in this moment. When you look at it without judgment, and without trying to fix, change, delete, get rid of it, you suddenly discover it's not really there. It's like the monster under the bed. As long as you don't look, <laughs> you know, it scares you and it freaks you out and you spend your whole life running from it um, or running according to its dictates, right? So um, I guess these days, my primary practice is not to think so darn much. I mean, when I'm not thinking an extraordinary life, you know, it's extraordinary life if you don't overthink it. It's extraordinarily, um, world if you don't overthink it um but you know you just can't you simply just can't appreciate what you're too busy analyzing and you can't enjoy what you're too busy examining i that needs to be on a sweatshirt and a mug because that <laughs> yes. absolutely needs to be the mantra for everybody i, I for love it show. we're going to business together on this absolutely my dad always jokes and he's like brianna you having an idle mind is one of the worst things because that's exactly what i start to do is just go down these rabbit holes of you know, and then again, it's like bringing yourself back to the present, like you said, and that, that's why even I love my mom calls me the question grape like these are questions I just have been asking my whole life I, because I think people are interesting and advice is most definitely a form of nostalgia so it's like the one of the questions that I want to you know ask you is like what is maybe one of the best piece of advice that you have maybe heard recently or something that you wish you would have you would love to say to young rob like yeah. piece of advice that really just resonated with you that you're like all right i can drive with this yeah oh so much i mean i guess the first piece of advice is every piece of advice you give is really meant for yourself there's that yes. <laughs> that's very clear about that with my clients it's like if they get a benefit great i'm like, super excited but i'm crystal clear that the one person that's definitely listening when i'm talking is me <laughs> so at least i should be right so so um i would say that there's that i would say also that like you know it sounds it's such a cliche, but cliches become cliches for a reason, right? Exactly. Like, 
don't worry, be happy. You know, Bobby McFerrin, it's just so simple, but it's also very difficult to put into practice when you haven't practiced it at all, right? Um, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, well, keep it simple. You know, I think I became lost in so many rabbit holes, the way maybe you described, over the course of many, many years. My goodness, I mean, I was obsessed and super stressed and anxious, the entire <laughs> happiness journey, like, oh my gosh, I'll read this book and I'll read that book and I'll talk to this person and that person. It seemed like it all contradicted each other. Like it was all so confusing and conflicting, it seemed. But then as I continued along the path with an eye on simplifying it all and looking for the common themes, I discovered, oh my gosh, all these incredibly wise people are saying the same thing with different words and language and vocabularies and semantics. It's just semantics. And when I dove deep enough, into any spiritual tradition, into the science, into philosophy, into poetry, I discovered that, you know, the mystics were all saying the same thing. And most of it was like, breathe, enjoy breathing. If you're hungry, eat, do one thing at a time. Thinking counts as one thing. It's probably a great piece of advice. I, it's like when you're showering, just shower, don't think. Yes. When you're washing, things only hurt. It only, it's like in Zen they say, it's only painful to do the dishes when you're not doing the dishes. So when you're distracted and your mind is on the 50 other things you have to do that day or the 50 things you didn't do yesterday or the 30 things that people said to you that they shouldn't have said, it's painful to do the dishes. When you're just doing the dishes and you're really experiencing the physical sensations and you're practicing what I would call practicing the presence of God, it is pure bliss. It's pure bliss but you really have to dial into that. So I'd say presence overall is probably the greatest piece of advice I've ever been given. It's just be present. Yeah. People, it is so interesting because the more you learn about something, your passion for it, it grows, it grows. And so you want to learn more, but then it's like, you do go down further and further and you're like, but wait, it, it really can't be this simple because we love to reinvent the wheel or think that we need to or make things more complicated and i always joke and i'm like don't stress about stress i remember when i was writing my dissertation i'm like i have anxiety about anxiety writing about anxiety you are just what a gift you are yes yes i remember getting to a very similar place in my life where because we're self ruminators right so we ruminate a lot and worry a lot about what's going on in our lives and who are we and what's our life for and and i remember getting to a place where i actually had a maybe just a few moments, maybe a micro moment, when I didn't have anything to worry about. I was like, oh, wait. And in that very moment, I started to worry about not having something to worry about. I was like, oh no, it's gotta be something big then. It's probably something very serious. Like, what is it? And I would, so my mind wouldn't stop looking for something to worry about until it found it. And then I was like, oh, the problem truly is my mind. It's not my life. It's not the world. The real terrorist in my life in the world is our own minds, you know? And so what I just was like, wow, I've been thinking all these people that have done these things to me or all these things that are happening in the world are worse to me than me. But back to your original point, which you mentioned earlier, it's like, I've always been the meanest person to me. I've always been by far harder on myself than, I, than anybody else has because I, they, whatever they did to me, they did once or twice or even 10 times, but I've relived it and maybe even pre-lived it a thousand times, each of those experiences. So, yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for 10,000 hours, but I want to ask you one last question before you let everybody know how they can follow you, where they can buy their book, listen to your podcast, all the things that are Rob Mack. So being a happiness coach, taking the pressure off yourself to not feel happy all the time and whatnot, I'm sure you've had maybe a day or two over the past year, which has been maybe not your best day. So what, what do you do personally to get yourself back to being like, I'm good. Like, I feel like I am vibing with myself and living my most authentic, even though I just had a terrible day. Yeah. So I'll give you the answers that most people want to hear. And then I'll give you the one that I really. Yeah. I want the real stuff around yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say first and foremost, I exercise. I mean, exercise for me is like, it's a moving meditation. There's no question about it. Um, and I actually practice, try to practice it that way. Like each rep, I try to stay out of my head, just in the body, you know, I would say that. Secondly, I love reading. You know, I love reading so much and I love reading hardcover books or real you know, physical books. That's the second thing. Of course, I love um, meditating. It sounds so serious to even call it meditation. It's just like um, forgetting the world and forgetting everybody in the world and forgetting myself and just laying on the ground and breathing. Like just, you know, yes. just that or just sitting there and just like doing nothing for once. Just do nothing. And even... Don't even do nothing. Don't even do anything with your mind. If the thoughts come and sensations come, just notice them. Just like you're watching clouds in the sky. So, and I would say that by far my favorite practice of all time is what I would call practicing the presence. Now, it's really practice the presence of God, but that word God is really messy and can trigger lots of us. I like the word life because there's life inside of us, obviously. Um, not just that we have a life, but that we are life. When I feel into that inside your own body right now, you can feel the energy, the peaceful aliveness, your hands, your feet. I just spend time filling into that, communing with that, and spending time with that in the same way I would spend time with you or my mom, just not to get something from you. It's great, you know, get all these incredible gems, but just to do it because it feels so good, right? And what's interesting is the more I do that, the more circumstances, situations sort of prepave themselves, things line up, people come into my life that I couldn't have possibly found in any other way. So that's my favorite practice by far. When I'm having a really tough day, I just try to remember God or life and call it the universe. But whatever it is that hangs the earth on nothing, and it's also in us, I just try to spend time with that. I love that. I mean you just have a calming presence to you and you obviously, you know, your vibes are, you know, po positive and happy. I can imagine people just feel happiness, but since everybody can't have access to you all the time. I always tell people like just ugly cry to your mom on the phone and you'll probably also feel better. Like let's not underestimate those things as well. A hundred percent. Look, I love a good retail therapy session. Like, are you like, are you kidding? Like Absolutely. I will go online and cop some stuff I do not need again. Right. Is that, is that, there's also like, you know, my mom would always, when I was really struggling years, you know, 20 years ago, she'd say, honey, will you just go for a walk outside? I'm like, mom, but I have real problems. Like, you know, existential problems. <laughs> like, I know, honey, I know it's probably useless, but I'm your mom. Will you just do it for your mom? And I would say, of course, mom, I'll do anything for you. Go for the walk, for you know, the 37,000th time, you know, in a row, it would help a lot. I'd feel, okay, I don't feel quite suicidal anymore. I feel like maybe I'll now do something else. I know. Imagine all the years we could have saved if we ever listened to our moms the first time, but then you wouldn't know the lessons, you know? Exactly. And uh, there's something to be said uh, 
for really living your way into the answers. I love that. I mean, we have about 10 new catchphrases for you that we'll talk about <laughs> expanding your merch line when we're offline. But in I the meantime, that. where can people learn more about you, um, get your book, all things Rob Mack? Yeah, so you can find me at coachrobmackmack.com. You can also find me on most social media platforms, but most consistently Instagram at robmackofficial. Um, and you can find my book, the first book, Happiness from the Inside Out, everywhere great books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I love it. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for your time. And this has been a wealth of knowledge for me as well. So I appreciate having you on the show. You are such a gift. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And thank you, not just for what you do, but for who you are. Like, I want to give you the biggest hug ever. No. You have such light just pouring out of you. And um, I just want to thank you for sharing it with me. Thank you.